You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood, told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining us on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. This is where each week you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. And one of the key things about these journeys, as we've all come to see, is they are rarely straight lines to success. There are often a lot of stumbles and sidetracks along the way. Yet many of us, and I know I did this myself for years, I would look at successful men as always having been successful, always getting what they set out to achieve. Because we're seeing the evidence of their success right in front of us. So it's easy to look at a successful man and think that he's always had his shit together. That he succeeded every step of the way until he made it big. And for me, it made me question my failures. It gave them even more power over me because I felt wrong for failing. Especially when I would look at successful men and believe they never failed themselves. Because we often don't see or hear about the failures the times they fell on their faces, or the times they lost it all. And that's because a lot of people don't share their failures. They don't acknowledge the setbacks and stumbles they've had along the way. Their ego prevents them from owning up to their failures. They're ashamed of them, so they hide them, and they hide from them. They want to be seen only as the perfect success they present to the world, that somehow admitting to failure makes them less perfect, that they've only ever been successful at everything. Well, that's bullshit. Show me a man who is incredibly successful and I'll show you a man who has failed, often failed hard and repeatedly. Look at Abraham Lincoln, look at Andrew Carnegie, Winston Churchill, Steve Jobs, all of them legendary men and all men who helped change the world. They're also all men who had strings of crushing failures in their lives. And they all battled back, persevered, and used the lessons from those failures as fuel to ultimately succeed and succeed big. There is courage in owning your failures, in being honest with yourself and admitting to them. And there's integrity in not running from them, in not allowing yourself to be a victim because of them. Because that's the other side of failure, giving up and becoming a victim of your circumstances. Great men never cry victim. Men like Martin Luther King Jr., he never whined about being a victim, even in the face of horrific treatment. Instead, he inspired and he rallied millions to dream bigger and fight for what they believed in, because that's what great men do. They look for the positive, even in their darkest circumstances. They look for the lessons in their most humiliating failures and use them as inspiration and motivation for the win. And that's something my guest today has done himself. He's a man who overcame challenges to achieve incredible success, even though everything in his early life pointed to someone who could easily have become another statistic. He came from a broken home. His father was a drug addict who died young. His mother was and still is an alcoholic. He was a poor student at risk for dropping out of high school and running with a bad crowd. He was in and out of trouble with the law. Fortunately, he was raised by a grandfather who instilled in him a belief that he could be more than what his circumstances may have dictated. And by the time he was 27, he made his first million. 
His name is Jared Elmar, and now at 41, he is a highly successful, self-made multimillionaire. And he heads the real estate investment company he founded, the Geneva Group. Never seeing himself as a victim, Jared looks at his childhood challenges as motivation, and he regularly speaks to at-risk and lower-income students about his story and how they have the same opportunity to become as successful as he has become. He teaches them how they can do exactly what he did, regardless of the expectations others may have on them. He inspires them to rise beyond where they are today and become the success stories of tomorrow. For more than seven years, Jared had a radio show where five days a week, he taught listeners how money works with a no-nonsense approach to investing, free advice they could use to get ahead financially. In 2009, along with many who owned real estate, his business ended up suffering greatly. But with a belief in himself and passion and persistence, he came back stronger than before while many gave up. Jared also has a mission to leave a lasting legacy. And to do that, he has set a goal of making $200 million in his lifetime and then donating $180 million of that to charities. And he's already well on his way to making that mission a reality. What struck me talking to Jared was even though his family life growing up was not ideal, he always spoke of the value and love he did get and the lessons he learned. He never had a bad word to say about his parents, even with all he went through because of their addictions. He always spoke of them with love and respect. In fact, his mother, who you'll hear about in a minute, is still battling her demons, and Jared still has a deep love for her and still takes care of her financially, something he's done since his teens. Jared told me his parents separated when he was three, and his father died very young. I asked Jared how old his father was when he died, and if he had any memories of him or resentment toward him. He was 39, I was seven. So it was mixed feelings. You know, I remember him drinking in the car. I remember him doing deal. I, I assume he was doing a drug deal while I was in a, in a hot car. I remember it was a black Pontiac with T-tops and it was like a greenhouse in there. And um, I remember just sitting there, just baking with no ability to get out because everything was electric. So that was, uh, that was an experience. Um, How old were you then? I was probably, I guess, six. It seems like six is, the, uh, is what I remember most about of around that age. But at the end of the day, I know even as a, as a kid, you know, he showed me love. He tried. He just had a lot of demons. He was battling himself. So um, when he passed away, my grandfather kind of took over. Uh, my grandfather, I remember, moved into uh, a house that we were renting in Hollywood. My mom, you know, developed her own habits. I think a lot because of my dad and, and my mom had a rough childhood as well from what I understand. But, uh, yeah, my grandfather kind of took, took over and, and he was, um, he was homeschooling me with common sense, with logic, street smarts. Cause that's all he had. He wasn't a college grad. Nobody in my family's been a college grad. Your mom. So you said she, she kind of had her own addictions, battling her own stuff. When did yeah. that start? Was that, do you remember that from the beginning or that was later yeah. on? No, I remember, um, Specifically around nine years old, I remember it really starting. I remember being at the house. My mom never remarried until about 15 years ago. So she, you know, she was a single mom. And, and for that alone, I have a lot of respect for her. And she's mom and, I, and I'm always going to love her and I'll do everything I can to take care of her. But uh, I remember really raising myself a lot. Um, at, at some point, I think it was around nine years old, my mom picked up and decided to move to Atlanta, kind of running from her problems. 
So for a year, maybe even two years, I was living in Atlanta and she had a house that she was renting in, in Marietta. And um, my, I remember my uncle moving to Atlanta and she was very close with her brother, that's my uncle. And that drove her to Atlanta. And I obviously being nine years old, I had to go with her. And I remember at that point, it got really bad. Her drinking was, was you know, out of control. Um, she was, and she wasn't belligerent. She wasn't uh, mean or, or abusive. She just wasn't around. She was either passed out in her bedroom or, um, or she was out, you know, partying. You know. So who was with you at nine years old? Were your uncle there or you were just basically alone? Now uh, my golden retriever. I remember it was me and the dog. Uh, we'd order a pizza and, uh, and I, yeah, I raised myself. And I remember that was hard to leave my grandfather. I mean, he, he and I had a lot of nights that we were crying when, when my mom said we're moving to Atlanta and he just, he's afraid he, he would never fly. And we, we had no money. Um, I had no money growing up. My mom had no money. My grandfather lived in a 300 foot efficiency apartment and living off of an army pension and social security. And uh, we just didn't have any money to keep traveling back and forth. So that was tough to leave my grandfather. He was really the rock in, in my childhood. This is one of the things that strikes me throughout my conversation with Jared, how, how he never sees himself as a victim, either of his childhood or of his circumstances. And it really made me look at how easy it is for me to use those things as an excuse or a scapegoat when I face failure. Now, even with all of her faults, Jared loved his mother and he loved his grandfather who was the one person he got the most attention and guidance from. About a year after heading to Atlanta, Jared and his mom moved back to South Florida, and he got to go back to his grandfather, which made him very happy, even though the conditions in his neighborhood and his school were challenging. At some point, I remember it was, uh, you know, I guess it was around 10. Uh, actually, no, I was going into sixth grade. I remember I was going into middle school. And um, my mom, I finally convinced my mother, my grandfather finally convinced my mother to let me live back home, back in South Florida, I consider that home. So I moved in with him in that 300 foot apartment. And I went to, uh, uh, South Florida is not really known for their, uh, their schools. Yeah. Uh, and I was probably in one of the worst districts. So it was a bad school that I was in. I mean, fights and stabbings and it was a lot of drugs and uh, it was all middle school. I mean, kids were driving to middle school. And that was, that, those three years definitely got me thick skin. I, Unfortunately, I learned how to fight. I got into sports, which was great. And, uh, but I was with my grandfather. And as bad as the school was and the curriculum, and um, I think they even threw me in dropout prevention, which was this program that ultimately allowed you to go to school, but you didn't do a lot of work because they were worried that if there was too much pressure, you would just drop out. So I don't think I should have been in that program, especially all three years. But with my grandfather, you know, he had me reading business magazines you know, from the day I can remember, uh, just to understand, you know, what, what, it, what it means to really make money in, in the U.S. So I remember that, you know, and that, that really stuck with me. Yeah. Tell me more about your grandfather now. So he, began, so he was your mother's father or your father's father? Yeah, my mother's father. Okay, so he was your mother's father and he basically raised you at that point, right? From, yeah. from middle school on. And yeah. tell me some of the lessons that you learned from him and some of the things that he was teaching you, because you said he, he made you, not made you, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. You're telling me that he gave you business magazines to read. So what was his intention? What was he doing with you at that point? I remember him telling me, I mean, we were reading, he would hand me a Forbes magazine at 10, 11 years old, and I didn't know what I was reading. I didn't understand any of the articles, but number one, he wanted me to read well. And, uh, and also he wanted me to understand that 
you know, financially, when you're just looking at it monetarily, making $50,000 a year may be good for some, but you're, it is, he kept pounding into me that these guys in the Forbes magazines and this back in the 80s, guys making 50 million a year, he says, that could be you. So he wasn't, he wasn't the most uh, structured family man. Um, he worked 100 hours a week. He was a window, uh, window decorator in New York City. So he, would, he was never home. And he had a bad marriage and they divorced and then he got sick and he lost his nerve to really make more money and he, he lost all his money. He actually did pretty well when he was younger, but then he lost all his money and then he lost his nerve. So I think I was kind of an extension uh, and an ability for him to kind of make up what he wasn't able to do. He lost his nerve. You're going to hear about lost nerve more as Jared speaks. It's part of what drives him, learning from men who may have achieved success, then lost it, and how that crushed their will to achieve success again. Jared says he is a way for his grandfather to make up for past mistakes, to make right for his mistakes with his kids. I asked Jared about these mistakes and how they affected his parents. He told me, and he also told me how he felt loved even in the condition his parents were in and the difference that made in his life. I also don't think he was a very good father. My mom's got a lot of issues because he was never around. My uncle has a lot of issues because he's a stubborn, he was a stubborn guy. And uh, I think he was just trying to make it all up with me. So the one thing I can't deny through all the trial, you know, the challenges in, in my upbringing is I always had love. My grandfather always showed me love and my mom in between her, you know, her, uh, her stupors, she, she always showed me love. She did the best she could considering. And my, and my dad too. So that's the one thing it's, 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 you know, I could have went a completely different direction with the neighborhood, with the friends, with the crowd that I was hanging at, hanging. And I got in a ton of trouble when I was a kid. And, and I, you know, this is probably the first time I'm saying this. I actually did drop out of high school. I had a couple, uh, a couple of courses, uh, classes left and I wound up getting my GED. You could have gone down a really bad road, right? With all of this influence that you had, your mom, your dad, the schools, like you just said. So what, what really kept you from going down that path? What, what kept you on the path you went down, which ultimately led to phenomenal success? I don't know really what gave me the drive. I mean, I, you know, I keep saying it now that I have a kid of my own, it's, it's like, not having anything, you know, growing up and just hearing about how great it is to have money to, to be successful was enough of a, uh, of a boost for me to just kind of equate it to the Cuban refugee. You know, he, uh, he, he set sail on a raft to get to, you know, the southernmost point of, of Florida only because he heard how great, you know, the U.S. is. He never saw it. He just heard how great it was. All he knew is it had to be better than where he came from. And, and, I, and that's kind of how I felt that something's got to be better than this. And, you know, and I, I didn't do well in school and, and partly because, um, you know, I just had no real, no real guidance. And, and, and again, it was just bad schools. So I, I don't really know what, maybe that's, that's all I can think is it's just not having it. And, um, you know, I, I kind of feel bad sometimes for the second and third generation guys with structured families and money and never having to want you know, they don't feel the same euphoria when things go well, like somebody who really uh, scratched and clawed and, and had nothing but challenges growing up. It really hit me how Jared embraces the challenges he faced. And again, how in my life, I may have used them as an excuse for not doing something, for not achieving something. 
It drove home how important it is to face challenges, to learn to conquer them and feel the thrill and sense of achievement, and how earning something is so much more fulfilling than just being handed something, and the level of appreciation it creates versus the sense of entitlement. Besides facing challenges, one of the things Jared got from his grandfather was a deep sense of duty to give back. Here he tells me about experiencing his grandfather's sense of duty. Tell me some about some of that, some of the challenges that you had getting to where you are now. I mean, I, I, you know, we talk about your grandfather. He was a hero. He was someone who really kind of gave you this guidance. It was his reboot, right? It was his feeling of, I'm going to do better with my grandson than I did with my own kids. And then you went on and actually fulfilled that. The one thing that he always did uh, that I I saw with my own eyes is, um, you know, the guy was raising me on, I think, $1,500 a month. I think that's what what he got between the pension and Social Security. That's kind of trying to remember that number. And he always gave. I'm, I'm Jewish, but I've had no Jewish education, no Jewish background, really no connection to my faith until later in life. Um, but the one thing he always said is, you know, I was in World War II. Um, this is what happened in the Holocaust. I remember even being young, him explaining it to me. It didn't really resonate until later in life. But he says, you give to the Jews. You take care of the Jews. You take care of the vets. And that's kind of what, and I saw him do it. So he had no money. He raised a kid in this little apartment. And I never saw a guy stretch a dollar like he could. And uh, he was so organized with that. So the idea of budgeting and, and charity and philanthropy it's something that I was raised with, even at a very small level, um, dollar-wise. It was a big part of his life, and it was a big part of him instilling uh, certain core values that, that nobody else would have. Well, give me an idea of some of those core values that he instilled, you know, besides the giving, which is, you know, and, and obviously love as well. Yeah, just work, harder, work a little harder than everybody else and, uh, and watch how much further you go. That was a big one. You know, he's, uh, knowledge is power you know, um, trying to make me understand the value of a dollar. I mean, I remember being a kid, we walked through, uh, you know, walk through a, a toy store or something and it'd be some little trinket. And, uh, and he'd say, that's two, they're asking $2 and 50 cents for that. Do you know they're going to make $2 and 70 cents on that? <laughs> so I never understood it as a kid, but he, he kind of taught me the value of, of quality. And that always resonated with me too. But at the end of the day, it was, you can do anything. You know, look at these guys in the Forbes magazines that you're reading. Even with all this positive influence from his grandfather, there was a point in Jared's life where he came to a crossroads. Either become the success his grandfather envisioned or let his circumstances take him down, allowing the challenges and the crutches to give him an excuse to fail. His decision on which path to take was made not in his grandfather's apartment, but in a jail cell. Doesn't matter where you come from, you know. everybody's got challenges in life. You know, does a woman have it harder than a male in America? Absolutely. You know, does, does a black man have it harder than a white guy in America? Yeah, absolutely. Does a Muslim have it harder than everybody in America? Does a guy with one arm has it? Everybody's got a crutch that they can lean on, but the guy who goes further and, and really truly leaves legacy, not for family, but for the, you know, for the human race is the guy that never uses all those challenges and all those, uh, uh, shortcomings to hold them back from doing what they're really truly capable of. And those are the things that he instilled in me really young, which I didn't understand. And somehow I think in my later teens, when I was getting in a lot of trouble and I had a kind of at a crossroads, things started clicking. 
that I remember him telling me about. And, and it started just making sense and like puzzle pieces just falling, falling, uh, you know, almost uh, destiny, if you will. It, it actually, things just started connecting for me. Yeah, you know, I'm feeling too when, you, when you're talking about um, crutches, right? People using crutches, using things as an excuse. The other side of that is you can use that as fuel, right? That can be your power. That can be your fuel. Did you feel that in any way when you were coming up well, with your grandfather that, look, we have nothing. I came from nothing. Uh, you know, my way my family life was and my education was. This is all fuel for me to prove that I can go farther. Pain is a great motivator. It's, uh, you know, I, I sometimes worry for my kid because she doesn't have the same life, the same childhood as me. You know, she's got everything now. So that, that's, been the, that's been the biggest thing that's going through my head these days. But for, for me, when I, uh, when, when, I think I'm trying to remember what age I really started getting into trouble. It was around high school. High school, I just started hanging with the wrong crowd and started doing some things with kids, you know, with, uh, with, you know, kids. And that was, uh, you know, that was a crossroads. I remember going to, uh, I went to, I, I, we got arrested and I went to jail. And um, I remember I was on probation for underage drinking. And, and if you're on probation and you go to jail, you're automatically held uh, until I think your court date or something like that. So. I remember um, I, was in a, uh, I was in a car with three other guys and with stolen stereo equipment. Nobody talked and everybody went to jail. And uh, I spent two days in general population. And that, that, was, that was the crossroads because I didn't know if they were going to pull up that I was on probation and all of a sudden I was going to be stuck there for the next three months. That was a changing point, a turning point for me. I think that was my, uh, probably my junior year in high school. What really kind of struck to make that solid in your mind that this is not where I want to be. It was only a couple of days I was there, but you know, you talk to a lot of people in those two days cause there's nothing else to do. But, uh, I remember talking to, uh, you know, to, I don't know, seven, eight guys and the same, the story was pretty similar. This was not their first time. Every single person that I was there, they just, it was, uh, you know, every six months to a year, they were back in jail. And I remember finally getting called. I remember it was, uh, you know, Elmar bag and baggage. I remember that's what they say. And, uh, the guy looks at me, uh, older black guy, and he says, you don't belong here. Don't come back here. And, wow. uh, and again, I just certain memorable moments that you have in life, that was, that was kind of one of them that said, all right, you know, I'm, I'm kind of destined for something other than this. Even in jail, there was a man who stepped up to help and guide. A man who recognized that Jared did not belong there and had the sense of duty and compassion to say something, even though he himself had made wrong decisions in his life and was now behind bars. He knew he could speak to Jared from a place of experience, proving you don't have to be a perfect man to influence and empower the lives of other men. Jared has a young daughter now, and it's important to him to raise his daughter with the ability to face challenge as he did. He doesn't want her to grow up jaded or spoiled or entitled. It is so important for good men to raise not just strong men, but also strong women. I asked Jared about his daughter. I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier about your, uh, your daughter. You said that you almost feel bad because she has a different life than you. We see that a lot in a lot of younger people where they're, uh, we'll call it entitlement right? Or it's, there's less of a challenge. So there's nothing as earned as, as, as you had. So what do you, what are your plans on that? What are you doing to make sure that 
she has some challenges. She has some obstacles to overcome, some things that drive her and get her going. You know, I want to always make sure that she knows that uh, the world that she sees right now is very different than the world, you know, uh, the way the world really is. She's in this bubble. She goes to a good school with, with kids that are a similar demographic. So what we do is uh, I'm big with charity. And she comes with me when we're doing, um, you know, we work at the cupboard in, in, in South Florida, you know, where we, we're packing, uh, you know, meals for Holocaust survivors and, and uh, you know, elderly uh, people that, you know, can't get out on their own to shop. So she, she comes with me to that. And I took her to the old neighborhood. I took her to my, uh, my studio apartment, which when my, ba- when my grandfather passed away, I wound up taking over that apartment and uh, continuing for another, another four or five years before I met my wife in that apartment. So well, that's, that, that apartment was everything. It was very hard to ever leave that apartment. But I, I took her there and it, wore, it looked worse than when I was there um, as far as the, you know, the, the, the yard and everything else. So I show her, I'm like, this is how I was raised. Okay, now let me t- take you where mommy was raised, which wasn't much better. So neither me, my wife, neither of us went to college, neither of us came for money. And we, we really try to pound that into my daughter to understand this is why daddy, you know, works the way he works. And this is why I tell you the things I tell you. And, you, you know, you got mommy with you all the time, which is very, it's, it's not the norm. So again, just like I was when I was 10 years old, you know, which, which is her age now, and we've been telling her this for a lot of years, none of that clicked when I was younger. My hope is she's going to remember those memorable moments, those, those sound bites throughout her childhood. And at some point in her life, it's going to click like it did for me. What's interesting about it is, is the different way that you have to bring her up from how you were brought up. A lot of times we hear people, you know, they have kids and they came up rough or they came up a certain way and it's expected that that's how their kid's going to be brought up, right? Or it comes up that, you know, I don't want them to have any of this experience, anything, and I want them to stay in that bubble, which can be just as damaging. Without a doubt. You know, again, I guess we'll post game this in the next four years, five years and see how she's doing. But uh, <laughs> uh, my, she's a great kid. She's a great kid. Um, you know, mommy's doing a great job. She gets the mother of the year award. You know, you, you think about all these different ways that, you know, divine intervention probably plays a role in everybody's life. You know, meeting the right partner, you know, not making any mistakes uh, at a young age um, to, to screw that up. You know, keeping your cool when your kid's not exactly uh, – being, uh, you know, easy and making good decisions in business and, 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 you know, what you do in the course of a day. For me, I think it's just, I constantly use this one line that, uh, that uh, a mentor that I had in, in real estate told me and he says, just do your best not to put yourself in a position to lose. You know, and that comes all the way down to put your damn seatbelt on when you're, when you're in the car. You know, don't have a bunch of drinks and then jump in the car you know, think through some major decisions and not just be enamored with the opportunity that's in front of you. Make sure you actually really evaluate and understand, you know, what's the upside? What's the downside? Can you live with the downside? If you can, then move forward. So, you know, those are the things that I think have helped me, you know, now 41 years old, but it's been, it's been, you know, so for somebody who didn't finish high school and never went to college, or they did a couple of classes in college, but, you know, Things have been good financially for since my uh, my late twenties, and I think it's just making good decisions. And I, I think my grandfather again just instilling some street smarts in me because it certainly wasn't academics. 
Often it is the life education we get rather than the formal education we get that leads us to the most success. And Jared knew he wasn't good at formal education. He didn't feel college was for him. He decided he would be able to make the kind of money his grandfather told him about in real estate. He told me how he decided to work hard no matter what, to roll up his sleeves and make a better life, and how finding a mentor and having the courage to ask for his help helped him succeed. We started buying houses in the 2000s and um, sold the portfolio of houses at the right time. I think it was 07 or so. And then kind of graduated into apartments, which was great timing. I think we started buying apartments in 2000, late, late 09, early 2010. So the timing was good. And then we, I started investing in different asset classes, office, retail, industrial. And then at some point, and I, and I had a great mentor. I, I actually paid a lot of money uh, to be part of a kind of a mastermind group where it was really just fundamental commercial real estate education. Um, and then before that, I had the Carlton Sheets course, if you remember those infomercials, sure. uh, to buy houses with no money down. I, I worked that course hard and I cold called a lot of people and wound up uh, having a couple of people that were willing to, you know, what we call hold paper, you know, hold the first mortgage on the property and allowed me to get into the property with very little down. And then, you know, roll up the sleeves and make it better and rent it out. And so, again, it just came down to really hustling hard, getting some uh, cogent advice from some professionals that did it and, and then working it. And there's no magic bullet. You know, that's, that's what everybody's always looking for. There's just, there's no silver bullet here. Yeah, but, you know, I think what's important, too, about what you're saying is you had the, well, I'm going to use the word courage, we'll just say, because a lot of men, and I know myself in a, in a lot of situations, don't want to ask for help, don't want to ask for advice, don't, are, are resistant to going to other men and saying, hey, listen, I really don't know this. Can you help me out? In your case, you did. You found the right people and went and said, look, I want to learn as much as I can from you, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was, uh, you know, I had the, I had the, uh, the foresight to say, okay, I, I want to get to a certain level. My, my financial outlet will be, uh, or vehicle will be real estate. Now I just got to tie in to people that have done it before and I don't have to reinvent the wheel. That was another thing my grandpa used to always say, don't, have, don't reinvent the wheel. Find somebody who's done it before and mirror their success. You know, like Tony Robbins always says, success leaves clues. And, uh, and I, I followed that. I followed the people that have done it before and I still do. I still do. I, you know, it's, I'm lucky enough now to be with a lot of peers and guys that are, you know, next level that are more than happy to give me the, uh, you know, some education. It's, it's like, uh, and I always say I'm, I'm an 18 handicap on the golf course and I'm probably an 18 handicap in business. I'm respected enough by the pros and the guys on the bottom, but I'm not at this moment going to beat anybody out. So uh, there's plenty of people to still, uh, to still learn from. And I'm always constantly trying to educate myself. This is the power of always learning, always striving to gain more knowledge and more experience, never being satisfied with what you know today. For me, this is big, you know, to drop my know-it-all, my I already know that, and allow for new information and new ideas to come in and understanding the impact that has on our success. Since so much of Jared's success had been driven by lessons instilled in him by his grandfather, I wanted to know why his grandfather had not created the same success for himself. It seems your grandfather's advice was, was really uh, empowering to you, drove your success. 
but your grandfather himself, your father himself, they were not successful or as successful as you are. What do you think made the difference between, um, you know, your dad? I, I think uh, you told me he was a model at one point and he was what an insurance salesman. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's funny thing is, as I was buying real estate, I, I got my life insurance license and I did really well selling life insurance for a long time. And then I found out only after the fact, uh, as my mom started giving me dribs and drabs of his history, that he was a life insurance agent with Mass Mutual, I think, and did really well with it. But he wasn't a workhorse. He, he was good enough. He was a good communicator, good salesman. Um, I feel like I've, I've inherited that part. I'm a good communicator. And, uh, and he was good enough to work 20 hours a week or so and, and do okay for himself, you know, obviously to support some, some habits. But, you know, he, uh, and, he, and early on, he was, uh, he was a model for a while. Um, he was, did some, some acting. And, uh, and my grandfather, his, his father, which I, I wasn't very close with, uh, he was an actor. You know, I, I don't know how successful, but I know I, I remember seeing portfolios of both of them. And it's funny because now my daughter is huge into theater. And I, and I even tried it at one point, but uh, my kid's a lot more talented than I am on that. <laughs> I think it all, it all comes down to, um, you know, your, your purpose in life and, and, and what gives you fulfillment and, uh, and what continues to, want you, what continues to uh, make you progress in whatever you're doing. I think progress ultimately equals, you know, happiness. I think fulfillment equals happiness. Um, I, I think once you get to a destination, you know, the idea, and, and this works for some people, but I know guys who sold their business, you know, they made a lot of money and they still have fire in their belly, but they're so nervous that maybe they just got lucky the last time and they don't want to lose what they got. This goes back to what we talked about earlier about men losing their nerve. They may have been successful, but they don't have the belief in themselves the belief in their talents and their abilities to fight for success again. Failure is taken as proof of some deficiency, proof that earlier success must have been a fluke, rather than using that failure as fuel to drive yourself to recreate that success. And this is what Jared did. Another thing that drives Jared is leaving a legacy. He told me how he got this sense of duty to give his duty to serve others from his grandfather and how he is determined to leave the world a better place after he's gone. I was raised as an only child. So I don't, and I have a daughter, so I'm the last Elmar. So the idea that my name is going to go away, it, it, it bothers me a little bit. The, and my grandfather always instilled in me that, you know, charity shouldn't end at home. It should start there. You know, your obligation is to your family, but I, I truly think we're, we're here for the short time to serve more than just family. And, and that's really what my motivation is. That's my why. My, my, my goal is to, uh, you know, to, to do well with, with the properties that I own, to, to give more value to the, the businesses that are in my buildings. But the end goal is to accumulate enough to be able to give, you know, 75, 80% of my net worth away. And I've come up with numbers that I think really create a difference on, in the planet. So that's really my end game. And my daughter knows it. My, my wife knows it. Uh, everybody in my office knows it. I, I make sure that I'm very vocal with it. You know, some people like to give anonymously, but uh, I don't. I, I want to motivate that, you know, where I came from and here it is, this is my goal. And I had nobody really other than a guy who was making $1,500 a month raising me, giving, you know, 20 bucks a month or whatever it was to the vets and to, uh, you know, to, uh, to the Jews. 
that was enough for me to say, you know what, I think I could be here and not only raise a great woman, but also, you know, serve my community and, and beyond by giving a lot of money away over my lifetime. Have you started doing that already? I mean, I know you said you work at the cupboard and you, you volunteer your time, but have you been donating large portions already? Yeah, to a certain degree. Uh, I do, uh, I give a consistent amount every year to uh, Jewish Federation of, of my, my county, Broward County. I've been doing that for a long time, since my 20s. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly the longest standing major donor in my, in my age, uh, at 41, from tw- you know, 26, I think I started with them, to 41. But uh, that's, that's it. You know, I remember they did an interview with Warren Buffett and, in his 50s. I think you know, he was in his 50s at the time, or 40s. And, you know, they, they actually chastised him a bit for not giving more money, you know, while he was really making a lot of money back in his 40s and 50s. And his attitude was, I'm going to be able to do a lot more by parlaying these dollars. So in 20 years from now, I could do so much more for the planet. And he turned out to be right. And now, I mean, look at what he's done. So I'm going under that premise also uh, that uh, I'm going to give a certain amount consistently. But I also know that, especially in the line of work that I'm in, uh, I could parlay and, and, and grow that money to be able to give a lot more down the road. So I, uh, I gave a little bit when I didn't have any money. And as I was coming up, I gave more and more and more. And now I'm very consistent on what I give and I, and I practice what I preach and I try to raise money for this organization. But I know in 10 years, 15, 20 years, I'm going to be giving a hell of a lot more. I asked Jared whether his grandfather lived to see his success lived to see what he instilled in Jared had come to fruition, that this kid he raised in a 300-square-foot efficiency with no father and an alcoholic mother who barely made it out of high school had grown to become a self-made millionaire dedicated to giving back so much. Now, he died in 99. I had no money in 99. But, you know, I I like to think that he's uh, he's looking down. And, you know, the, the little bit of family that I have left, that knew my grandfather, you know, they all say, you know, Gramps will be proud. So, and look, let me tell you, it's funny because I was listening to one of your other podcasts and it's so true with what one of the other, one of the other gentlemen said, I only realized later in life that the guy who was my absolute hero, that he was like a God to me, had his shortcomings and his faults too. And those are things that I learned what not to do from him also. You know, one of them is, you know, as much as I work, as hard as I work, as, as, as much as I'm away from the house, it's important that I create those memorable moments with my kid and my wife, and I do. And and it helps me a little bit that I have those memorable moments in my own life. I didn't have somebody playing G.I. Joe with me for three hours in a day, but I remember those memorable moments that, you know, my grandfather would take me to Toys R Us and and let me pick out a $5 gift or something like that. Those are the type of things that, you know, I'm I'm doing with my daughter, uh, whether it's uh, Ninja Warrior course or taking her to, uh, you know, to charity, you know, to do charity work, uh, jumping on the trampoline with her. Those memorable moments are the most important. It's the 20 minute stents. I, I don't think it serves her well that mommy and daddy would be with her 24 seven, right? That takes away all the challenges that, that, that make us who we are down the road. There's tremendous impact of creating those moments, even if they are short moments, balanced with the impact of allowing kids to face challenges. I wondered if Jared hit up against anything when his grandfather died because it would be so easy to use that as an excuse. So your grandfather dies, you're 20, you haven't made it yet. How did you feel about that when he left? And then did you go through a period of, 
I would say a crossroads where you could have gone down and, you know, and, and just said, well, shit, my, you know, the guy, the one guy who's been guiding me is gone. Now I'm rudderless. Or what we ultimately, I'm assuming, chose was, all right, I'm going to, you know, honor his legacy by becoming more. Yeah, I think it was in the back of my mind. It certainly wasn't a conscious moment that I said, you know what, to celebrate his life, I'm going to make sure that I am as successful as he wanted me to be. That, that wasn't anything that was like really in the forefront. It was, it was really in the back of my head. I think it was, I really think it was subconscious because it was drilled into me for so many years um, that I had the education. And because of that education and the conversations that we had when I was young, I, uh, I guess via osmosis, I, I just had the hustle. And even at that moment, even before he passed away, I just had the hustle. I just said, no matter what, you know, this isn't going to be luck. This is going to be inevitable that, uh, that I'm going to get to a certain level. It was nice that it happened, uh, you know, not too far in the distant future. You know, sometimes, again, it's, it's just, uh, you know, we're put in positions in our life. And sometimes we're in a lucky opportunity. And, you know, you, it, you know if, you, if you work your ass off every cycle of the market, regardless of what you do, you know, you might be on a hamster, you might feel like you're on a hamster wheel at certain times in your life. But as long as you stay consistent, at some point, something's going to click. And, and I had the, because of him, I had the, the street smarts, I had the, the common sense, you know, the, the advice that he gave me. So I was in, I, I had it, I had it ready for the opportunity. And then the opportunity presented itself and the market was pretty good. Um, and it was just in the beginning stages of pretty good. And I got into houses and then I got into financial advisory services where I was doing life insurance. And that was just a great time to be an agent at that time. So, you know, I always read books of these successful people and they always say, you know, it's always good when your first opportunity that you're given in life goes well the first time. It makes it a lot easier for the rest of your life. So, so I do, luck plays a huge role in all of our lives and it absolutely did for me too. And look, one of the greatest things, one of the things that I feel like I'm the luckiest is how I was raised. I mean, all those challenges in life gave me the thick skin and the grit and the determination to do something better than what I saw. And that, that in and of itself is the reason why I think I am who I am today. I, I wouldn't want it any other way. As a kid growing up, it sucked. I mean, in so many different ways. I hated being an only child. I hated not really having any, uh, you know, I, I wish I had a little bit more of a structure in my family. And there was no structure whatsoever in that family. So as a kid, it sucked. But now I look back, geez, it was the greatest thing that ever happened. This really hit me how Jared wouldn't have it any other way, how it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him and the value he puts on the challenges he faced in his life because of the impact they had in making him who he is rather than using it all as an excuse to make himself into a victim. Jared regularly talks about how he got where he is, about using those challenges and his upbringing as fuel at schools and colleges where students grow up in an environment similar to the one he experienced. I asked him about the impact his talk has on young men and women, hearing how he was once one of them. You do a lot of speaking now at colleges and, and, and some of these schools that are similar to what the school you went to, the, the lower uh, income area schools. And you tell these kids about your background and the challenges and that it didn't define you, right? So easy for so many of us to just cry victim. We talked about Absolutely. earlier in our conversation, right? These crutches that people have, uh, we can cry victim. What's some of the reaction you get from these kids when you, when you get there and you say, look, I, I came from where you are. 
I was sitting in that seat where you were. Now I'm a multimillionaire. Now I'm very, very successful. Now I own portfolios of real estate. Now I'm giving back to charities. Uh, you know, I have goals to leave a legacy with my life. What's their reaction like when they hear you speak? Yeah, I, I usually start off any, any uh, conversation or, or a platform speech, if you will, um, just saying, you know, everyone is self-made, but only the successful admit it. They only hear about these, you know, I always like to say, I'm the story that you read about, but you don't actually meet the guy. Because most people don't want to talk about their background, because quite frankly, what I found at 41 years old, most of the time, and this is a good thing, this is what I tell a lot of these kids coming up that, you know, think they only have one direction in life. Nobody cares where you came from. All they care about is where you are and where they think you're going. So the background, the story, it's got to be self-satisfying and self-gratifying. You know, it just makes for a good story. Everybody cares about where you are and where you're going. So the good news is all the shit that you did before, you know, short of uh, committing a major crime or hurting somebody, is all forgiven. As long as, you know, you apply yourself now and you focus. And, you know, I tell my kid, this is the, and this is the most important thing. And again, this is so good for somebody that's in a bad neighborhood that's not doing well in school. I tell my kid who's actually doing good in school, your grades are less important to me than how you deal with all the different personalities in school. And again, she's not going to understand this now, but I'm hoping it's going to click. When I hear, I want to hear about the conversations, the challenges that you had, um, how you overcame them with a friend or drama, uh, you know, or, or two people conspiring against another kid or you. I want to hear how you handled that. I want to hear how you maintained your cool. The grades are less important to me. The idea of emotional intelligence is why I am where I am today. Because again, I just wasn't very good in school. My kid could potentially be a triple threat because she is good in school. But for those that aren't doing well in school, you know, that's, that's, what, I, that's what I'm um, a product of. Uh, so it's the, it's the idea of how to handle yourself in situations. And it starts in, look, it starts in elementary school, how you handle yourself on the playground. Those are the things that I try to instill in her. And those are the things that I talk about when I do talk in a, at a school, you know, that is not known for their, their curriculum or their academics uh, ratings. This holds true to Jared's own experience, how he's not focusing on the grades, but getting into her world and seeing how she handles situations, how she overcomes challenges. I asked Jared if the kids who he speaks to from the lower income neighborhoods have a sense of, well, this is pretty much where I am in life and I'm screwed. Here's what he told me. And that is the attitude, for sure. That's the attitude. They're not saying it, but I remember how, I remember how it was when I was in those schools. So, you know, I, I usually start off by letting everybody know my background. Those are the moments that people actually give a shit. Those are the moments that, um, that they're like, okay, wait a minute. Let me hear what this guy has to say because he's talking right to me. You know, to say, I did lousy in school. Truth be told, if I didn't have all the distractions that I had, I'd still be lousy in school. I just wasn't good with test taking. I wasn't good with structure at all. I have major ADD. I always have. Um, I've always battled with that. And to sit and listen to somebody talk for 30 minutes, my eyes glaze over after 60 seconds. But, um, you know, letting them know I was lousy in school, I don't think there would have been ever any difference how I was brought up, whether, you know, I, did, I, I don't think I do well in school. There was no intent to go to college. I left I dropped out because at 17, I left my house. I never looked back. You know, I took care of mom, as, as you know, I still do. Those are the things they want to hear. And then all of a sudden, oh, by the way, 
here's what happened when I was 26 because I worked my ass off and an opportunity presented itself. And you know, it was, uh, it was low wage MBA money at 26, 27. And then all of a sudden I thought, you know, the, the ego was huge at that point. And then all of a sudden at 30, September, 2008, my daughter was born. She's my great recession baby. And the whole world fell apart. So talk about a bittersweet feeling. My business was done in shambles. I thought I'm immune. I was just a hot craps table uh, that just wouldn't go cold. And my ego is bruised. I question whether I should have ever got that kind of success, just like everybody does when they lose a lot. And couple that with all of a sudden I have a, uh, my daughter's born and I'm supposed to be so happy and joyous. And, and it was just, uh, it, was, it was very tough for me, especially somebody who didn't have any structure in my life and, and not really a family man. I'm still learning how to be a family man. My wife, luckily, she came from a very structured family. Mom and dad have been married for, I think, 45, 50 years now. So even though they didn't have any money, she had structure. And I didn't know what stru- how important structure was until my daughter was born. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic between mom and, uh, mom and me, you know, my wife and me. This is another time in his life Jared could have cried victim. And a lot of people in his industry did do just that. They pointed at a host of other factors and blamed them for their failure. I asked Jared what it was like at that time and how he battled back from losing everything. There's other people that lost their, uh, their nerves. I don't know how much I can cuss on this, but uh, you know, they lost their balls. Yeah. Uh, they, um, you know, some people just, especially in the real estate game, they're, you know, they blame the lenders, right? That was, that was the big thing. Well, the banks are wrong. You know, they should have never given me this loan. Look, I mean, you need to have some degree of financial intelligence if you're in this game that's, that's really a math game. You know, how are you going to blame one institution for your demise? And, and then you're going to just sit in the hole and, and not try to get out of the hole? Yeah, that just, I'm just not, I'm not wired that way. But I, I know many people that were, and they just never came back, and they missed an unbelievable opportunity uh, in, you know, 2010 is really where it started really roaring back, and it's been like that ever since, right? So this time I'm a lot smarter. Uh, this time I know what I'm not going to do because I, rec- I, I, you know, those, those mistakes I made and the ego that I had, you know, those are very fresh in my mind, you know. Uh, They're valuable stuff. learning experiences too, right? I mean, it's part of the game, Absolutely. right? You've got to take what's happened to you and learn from it rather than let it destroy you. Yep. And, you know, they say in Wall Street, uh, uh, you'll realize having money and lost it is worse than ever making money at all. Man, is that the truth? That is, uh, you know, if you don't have any money, you, you know, it's just, there was really no loss. But when you actually lost it, oh my God. Um, and, and you'll do one of two things. I don't think there's any gray line. Either you come back harder and stronger than you, than you were the first time to prove to yourself that you weren't just lucky. Or you say, you know what? There's no question I was lucky. I'm never going to be here again. Um, so, uh, so just give up. Uh, and I don't think there's much of a gray line. I, I really think that's just a ment- uh, human emotion. You know, it's the, the idea of uh, staying away from uh, fear uh, is, is stronger than, uh, you know, the, the feeling of potentially being successful, right? Sure. I mean, yeah, fear is a greater motivator than, than uh, gain. Right. Yeah, they've been using that in marketing forever. It's the fear of loss is much greater than the joy of gain. But also that, that loss is an incredible lesson to learn, right? I mean, you get, you get an amazing amount of uh, lesson out of that. You mentioned your wife, the family, the structure, your daughter. So here you are, you, know, you grew up with your grandfather. He was a war veteran. 
a very giving man, a man who taught you a lot, a good mentor. Now you are, I wouldn't say surrounded, but you know, you said you take care of your mom, still around, your wife, your daughter. There's a lot of, of women in your life. And um, your wife sounds like a very strong woman. And I know just from talking to a lot of successful men, there's almost always a very strong, powerful woman at their side. So tell me a little bit about your wife. I know you guys met. You said you had no money when you met. So she wasn't motivated by that. No. And um, so tell me about how she, you know, she is now and, and then raising a strong, powerful young woman and your daughter. You know, I try to tell Steph, my wife, Stephanie, I try to tell her, you know, how amazing I think she is, you know, but, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, life gets in the way and, and you, and you give her, you know, you give the cliff notes of how you really feel about somebody because things get in the middle of uh, your day. But uh, there's no way I'd be where I am without her. There's just no way. You know, it's so funny. We, we had no money and we joke around. You know, I, I should have had you sign a prenup when we had no money. And she started laughing. She's like, for what? I say, you know what? You're right. You deserve half. Something happened. Because there's no way that I, I would have been able to do what I did. She has kept me balanced. You know, they always talk about how opposites attract. She has been the, uh, the, the foundation um, of, you know, a wild mind and, and constantly racing with ideas and, you know, should I go this way? Should I go that way? You know, I get shiny object syndrome and she, she has been a, a sense of calm and a very turbulent world in my head. And she is, she's, she's just the, uh, she gets neurotic about certain things, but she is my Zen master. You know, I, I, I bounce things off of her and she doesn't care about this. She really doesn't. She's very charitable herself. She works uh, with uh, handicapped adults and uh, she got her father into it, um, and that truly gives her joy. And we, there's a, a kids um, a school that, that we help fund uh, for kids that are below or under the poverty line. All she cares about is helping people, and that's the way she's always been. The money, she, she can care less about the money. I found one of the great ones. To have my kid constantly in that world is, once again, just the luckiest thing that ever happened to me because I've seen how it could have been. I see other families that on the surface, everything looks great, but um, it's not, you know. I mean, we've been married 16 years now, and she stuck with me when I was um, not the best husband. And she's always been there. And um, I, think, I think for both of us, it's worked out well. But, um, I, you know, at the end of the day, I'm the lucky one. I always told her, even when I dropped down on a knee uh, uh, on a cruise with her entire family, I guess, uh, 18 years ago. I said, you know, you're not just the girl of my dreams. You're the girl. You're the girl of every guy's dreams. She's everything you look for uh, in a partner, in a wife. So yeah, once again, I just got very, very, very lucky. I told Jared I was going to challenge him on believing he is lucky, lucky in business, lucky in finding his wife, lucky in creating his family, but rather looking at it as it's what he deliberately created, and it's what his grandfather helped create by being the mentor he was. To be strong enough to say, I'm going to achieve more than what's expected of me. And to own that win and the pride in making his own success. It's something we can all do more and more, which is own our wins, own what we've created in our lives. I asked Jared about the biggest life lessons he's learned. Regardless of any challenges you have growing up or in the moment, um, it's not a reason to stop. You know, the good news is, I, you know, again, just to, to be uh, blunt and uh, candid, most people don't have the strength. Most people have too thin a skin. Most people uh, accept the failures and, and, um, and just live with it. And then the select few 
you know, learn from their mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes and say, you know what, I'm going to, I, all I know is I'm going to be better getting out of this is I went in. You know, the idea of the, the best way out of something is through it. And it either develops character and gives you a little bit more grit, determination, and thick skin to uh, overcome even the next harder challenge. So, so the idea that, you know, what was instilled in me, it doesn't matter where you came from. It really doesn't. You know, we're blessed enough to be in the U.S. We have every opportunity. And uh, if you don't seize that opportunity, you know, shame on you. Once again, you have a, you have a, a duty to your family. But I do think, you know, we're, we got to be here for more than just the two or three people in our family, immediate family. We got to be here for more than that. I, I truly believe it's, it's to serve, you know, the planet in some capacity. So, you know, you have no right to stop and feel sorry for yourself. What kind of life is that? You know, the whole idea, for me, it's legacy. And I, I, I want to be remembered for more than just being a good dad. You know, that, that dies. At some point, that idea that you were a good dad dies. But the idea that you made an impact on thousands of lives, that lives a lot longer. And that's what's important to me. And it's important to also pass that torch to my daughter and let her understand how important it is to give. You know, for me, charity equals legacy. You know, getting connected to faith, that was another one. You know, I'm not a religious guy <laughs> by any means, um, but I'm Jewish. I was taught to be proud that I'm Jewish from my grandfather. I, I give a lot to the Jewish, uh, uh, Jewish causes, but, uh, you know, I was never bar mitzvah. My kid is not being raised Jewish. My mom, my wife is married, you know, Italian. So, uh, you know, Roman Catholic and that's, uh, you know, she kind of won the religion war because she was baptized and confirmed. Um, I got to name her though. But at the end of the day, all I care about is that she has some faith that she's being raised with because that is something that really gave me a, a you know, to almost l look uh, you know, 10 feet over who I am and say, okay, wh what do you really want to be? You know, where do you really want to go? Uh, what's important to you? What do you want to leave? What are you going to leave the planet with? You know, you know there's certain moments that I had, uh, we just got, I got in a major car accident and walked away and it's just amazing that we walked away. And those are the moments in life that you're like, all right, what the hell is this all about? You know, what, what are we here for? Because you could have been gone 10 minutes ago. You know, what are you going to be remembered for? So, you know, the idea of legacy and really understanding why you're here because it ain't just to you know make money and it's not just to raise your kid it's contribution right it's contribution, contribution. absolutely commitment contribution yeah all of that you know for, for me it's it's been good financially but um i think once i once i had a kid i realized that it's not about making a dollar it's about making a difference that's been a big thing for me to uh to make sure that i put in the time to you know, get to my financial goals, but remember why I'm doing it. It's, it's to make a difference. You talk about legacy. Part of it is living as an example. I mean, living as an example is a legacy. There will be, you remember your grandfather now because of who he was and what he instilled in you, that lives on in you. What you're passing on to your daughter will live on in her. She'll pass that on ongoingly. And, and the hope is that that becomes the legacy. This legacy of overcoming challenge, continued success, overcoming failure, not letting failure stop you. All of those things become part of that legacy as well. Without a doubt. Um, one of the best exercises that I did um, several months ago on, a air, on an airplane is, uh, I think I read it in a book, I can't remember which one, but uh, you write your own eulogy. Uh, what you want people to say about you. 
and then refer back to that eulogy every once in a while and make sure you're living up to those standards. And, and that's what I've done. Living up to a set of standards is so important. It's why we have our sacred seven core values, which are courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love. And Jared embodies many of these. As a man of no excuses, not making himself into a victim, with the courage and self-honesty to own everything in his life. He has an incredible sense of duty to his family, his community, and to the world, and to do his part and leave a lasting impact and legacy, which is an incredibly important why, the sense of purpose that he got from his grandfather. I know many millionaires, and their why is self-importance, what they can do for themselves, how they can show how much money they're giving away because it's a sense of, look at me, look at what I'm doing not what legacy they can leave for the world. As I always do, after I interviewed Jared, I got the men of the round table together to get their takeaways from what he said. Joining me in this round table are Mark, Frank, Barry, Doug, Tom, John, and Alex. Mark leads us off talking about the responsibility of leading as a father. Actually taking your kids and spending time with them and doing things is just it's, I mean, it's such great leadership. But then how he talks with her about her day, you know, at the end of the day, he talks to her and it's like, yeah, grades are important, but what happened on the playground today? How did you handle yourself? That's masculine fatherly leadership. Here is Frank appreciating what Jared said about growing up with adversity. All of us know buying into that victim mentality is probably the most detrimental thing you could do to your life. And then the, to the extreme example of that, I kind of laughed when he said it because it was so, it was powerful to me. Of, he was like, I'm lucky I grew up the way I did. You know, you guys were talking about luck and he was like, I'm lucky I grew up the way I did. Like that was, a, that was amazing to me for him to, to have that point of view. That, that was awesome. Here's Doug talking about how Jared made sure his daughter understands how he and his wife grew up. I thought it was fantastic the way he just is into re remembering the misery, feeling that misery, but appreciating it's what he went through that he pulled out from and said, okay, I'm never going back to that, but I appreciate where I came from and I'm going to make sure people like my daughter appreciate that she has better opportunities, but she also needs to make sure she's responsible and she's independent and she knows how to get along with people and how to handle adversity. Barry added his feeling on how adversity is how you grow. I want to quote him following what Doug said. He said, I kind of feel bad sometimes for the second and third generation guys with structured families and money and never having the want. They don't feel the same euphoria when things go well, like somebody who really scratched and clawed and had nothing but challenges growing up. I thought that was awesome. And then he goes, that's what gave me my grit and my determination were the challenges. And, um, you know, I didn't have the same, same childhood he had. I had good parents that supported me. But my dad, if I wanted my first guitar, if I wanted my first car or whatever I wanted to get, my dad would say, you got hands, work. And I have to go out and get a job if I wanted something. And that taught me work ethic. It taught me independence. And, of course, I hated him for it when he did it because I knew he could get it for me. And I had to go work four months to get something but that's what made me what I am today and you know kids that are handed everything on a silver platter they don't have 
they don't have the you know you, if you if you don't put weights on your arms you're not gonna build your muscle here's tom on the importance of having love above money and material things i think he's really appreciated the fact of these little life lessons that he learned early in his life he didn't have everything but he does reference back you know, I think with a lot of admiration and respect that he always had love for all of their shortcomings His, you know, the parents, uh, you know, the grandfather love was always there. Uh, the money may not have been there. Uh, the companionship may not have been there, but the love was. Here, John talks about gaining wisdom and experience from grandparents. When he was looking at the things he could do with his daughter and and saying, hey, I'm not interested in your grades. I'm interested about, you know, how you interact with people at school and what you've learned. It's just passing along that, hey, common sense, logic, and street smarts that he was taught. And the, the whole grandfather thing, just that was the biggest thing I took away from that whole episode and just realizing how important the wisdom and experience of our grandparents and of the, of the people that have gone through things before us can be. And Alex wraps us up with what it takes and doesn't take to pass on value to others. For me, what hit me is um, I was very similar. I, I see a lot of similarities, in, but, but this one in particular, like alcoholic parents and then somebody else raising them and giving, you know, um, leadership or guidance or something like that. Not that I had that leadership and guidance on my end, but I'm being that for my kids. Like, look, you can come from this, but if you work hard, stay diligent, ambitious, you can achieve X in the world, if you will. And I've had a lot of judgment on myself for not, being to the level where I thought they would listen to me. Okay, so if I make $5 million, then it'll validate my point, and then you'll listen to me more, or I'll have more value, and it realizes, like, information and just what's right is right, and I don't have to judge my own personal monetary state because the granddad was, you know, basically broke and, you know, barely getting by, but what he stilled into him had extreme value. You know, so it just it was a healing process for me to hear that, like, wow, you know, I don't have to be the ultra millionaire to pass on value. I want to thank the men of the roundtable for joining me in this. And I think the biggest takeaway for us is that there is tremendous value to challenge and adversity to allowing people we love to experience it as well. And that you don't have to be rich or successful to truly bring value to the life of another. So don't wait. If you have valuable life experience, it's incredibly important to pass it on to another. Men out there, especially young men, are hungry to learn from your experiences. And now I want to know what you got out of Jared's story. Does it make it look at where you've used this challenging situation as an excuse rather than as fuel? Does it motivate you to take past failures and use them to drive you to future success? Let me know. You can find me on social media. The links are always on our website. That's WLKHpodcast.com. Click on those, come on over and leave a comment. Also, remember to rate us and leave a review and comment. And most importantly, make sure to share this show, this episode, with men you know will get value out of it. I'm sure there are at least three men you can think of right now whose lives you could help change for the better just by sending him this link. So please pass it on. I want to thank Jared Elmar for joining us today, for being real and honest and telling us the story of his journey to modern manhood. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother on your hero's journey. 
You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.